pal. Hey there. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host of Money Never Sleeps, along with Owen Fitzgerald. For insights beyond the spoken word, you can subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter at moneyneversleeps.substack.com. This week, we take a look at what to do about the condemnation of big tech's alleged monopoly powers, according to U.S. lawmakers, also the catch-22 of consumer fintech apps, Apple One and the role of Rundles, how to make sure you get something from pitching to VCs if not a check, and finally a word on the unfortunate passing of the guitar legend Eddie Van Halen. All packaged up as this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Here we go again tonight, pal. How you doing? Good, good. You? Awesome. What a good day. It's been a long day. It's been a long day. 9.24 p.m. as we're kicking off this recording here on the 7th of October in the grand year of 2020. Yeah. A lot of folks are saying, can't we just hit reset on 2020? I, you know, aside from the global pandemic, it's it's gone all right. We won't rush that yet because we're banking on 2021 being good, but uh, I won't be holding my breath just yet. I know. There's still, still a bit of runway to go left in the year. We'll see what comes of it. Um and there is an election in the United States less than one month away. I, I, I had not heard. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. Kind of just a little, little bit of a, you know, afterthought type of news piece and the little yeah. column on the back page. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Speaking of the United States, why don't we just jump right into it? Let's go for it. There's big news came out yesterday in the New York Times on the 6th of October. House lawmakers condemn big tech's monopoly power and urge their breakups. So in short, and I think this wasn't a big surprise that this was coming, um, but in yeah. short, to quote the New York Times piece, in a 449-page report that was presented by the House Judiciary Committee's Democratic leadership, lawmakers said the four companies had turned from scrappy startups into the kinds of monopolies we last saw in the era of oil barons and railroad tycoons. The lawmakers said the companies had abused their dominant positions setting and often dictating prices and rules for commerce, search, advertising, social networking, and publishing. So we talked about this in a few episodes in the last couple of months yep. um, about the crossover of big tech into financial services. A number of them are already on that path, but are they going to think twice about it now with this uh, th- these breakups being proposed? I don't know how they're going to break them up. We could talk about that a bit more but the first thing i thought about this was just all of our musings on big techs in finance and how is that all going to happen do you think this changes the context i like first reaction is yes i mean it's you know it's a powerful statement obviously but at the same time it's not unexpected this has been going on for a good while these sort of conversations or these sort of sound bites from the politicians you know it's been led by the democrats I, I was listening to some, uh, I think it was Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway the other day. They were talking about the fact that, you know, antitrust and these sort of monopoly things that over the last kind of eight years, the U.S. has kind of really undercut those budgets for that particular, I don't know if it's, I don't know which part department looks after those kind of cases, Department yeah. of Justice it must be. And, you know, they haven't, they actively haven't pursued any cases, you know, so... There's always been monopolies in the U.S. It talks about railroads there. Microsoft were a monopoly back in the day. You know, all of these things. 
it's it's a statement it's a lot harder to do than you know like in the same week i think it was in the same week almost that they announced that you had facebook integrate messenger across whatsapp and okay Instagram. i missed that yeah so you can you know yeah so the facebook messenger piece you can use across all of the platforms so it's connected them all even more together at the same time that obviously there's talk coming out about breaking them up so like how would you unwind some of those things yeah no that's what i was that's what I was kind of thinking about, right? And that was one of the first things that came to mind. Now, you know, on the financial services side, specifically, the guys at Norman Alex, who I'd never heard of before, I Googled, I think it was big tech financial services just earlier today. Uh, their recruitment firm, they did a nice breakdown back in February on big tech's move in the financial services. And I think we, we've talked about all this type, type of stuff before. Yeah. Google Pay, Facebook Pay, Amazon Pay, Apple Pay, and different very derivations of that going to different types of users of financial services. Now, you know, will this news perhaps stifle some of that? I, I think you're, I know you're saying yes, but I'm kind of like, these seem like such small parts of what they do, right? That was this their, their overall, what's his name from The Simpsons? Mr. Burns. You know, was this his overall, <laughs> you know, Mr. Burns slash Dr. Evil strategy to actually yeah. take over financial services? I don't think so. It was just like, how can we continually get closer to the users? Continue to monetize our exactly, customers. Exactly. And monetize yeah. that attention. And trying to think about this as a monopoly is such a mind twisting thing. Like you said, when you compare it to the railroads, you know, back in the late, you know, 19th century, was it a technological advancement that you had railroads crisscrossing the United States and with some predatory pricing, perhaps an unfair competition going on? Now looking at it, I wouldn't call it tech, but back then it was, right? And same with telecoms yep. and, you know, Ma Bell and the Baby Bells being broken up in the 80s. So, you know, if you're to think about how you would break it up, I, I looked at Google, right? Because I guess the report 449 pager that I will not read focused mostly on Google and Amazon. And, you know, we'll talk about Amazon in a second, but Google, I, again, I Googled, you know, their business lines, um, AdWords yeah. and search advertising, pretty simple, right? You know, that you can buy the words that go into the most yep. effective search. And that, you know, gets you up near the top of the rankings, right? Uh, and there's also something called AdSense, which is displaying ads on Google websites. Great. You know, we, we know what that is. Ad banners, whatever, some type of ad that ends up on, on a, visible on a Google website. How do you actually break that up? And I can see you on this camera, Owen, look at me blankly, because you don't know either. But that, that's, what, that's my real no. challenge here. Usually these things, there's some kind of directed simple answer somebody online somewhere doing some type of breakdown of this oh look there definitely is and it's it's funny because actually that that particular piece so google in particular has like long been a target of kind of uh, the antitrust laws and monopoly uh, charges and they've tried position themselves on the basis that they're a tech company and it does all of these things and part that's probably part of the reason why they diversify so much and the same with amazon but fundamentally, like they have a monopoly position in search. Mm -hmm. Like that's without a shadow of a doubt. I don't know what the stats, I can't remember last time I saw the stats, but we're talking like 60% plus market share. Like they, they own internet search, you know, whatever about anywhere else. But they try to count it or counter that by saying, well, we do all these other things. So we're not just a search engine. So could you, you know? say that they would keep the browsers, 
Um, they would keep the ability to earn advertising revenue on third parties that are paying them to put banner ads up or some type of ad up on Google websites or, and on YouTube and any of the other you know properties that Google have. But then you allow third parties perhaps to offer the AdWords, right? And that those third yep. parties make revenue off of companies that want to push their businesses up to the top of Google rankings. So you have a you know third party ad tech provider that can plug into Google and they get all the revenue, right? Because they do all the search engine optimization type stuff. That's perhaps where this could go, but it seems like such a drop in the bucket that. Uh, look, maybe it becomes, because maybe the, the example is out there in the market now with what the, what the US have tried to force on TikTok by saying, well, you know, we're going to ban you. So all of a sudden it splits out this piece of it to become a US operation and the other piece okay. is like the rest of the world or whatever. Maybe they just, it, it becomes a geographic thing. And we talked about that a few weeks back about, you know, you know, splitting up the world in that sense. Maybe they just say, well, you know, Google, okay, you're the biggest player here in the US or whatever, but now you're not, you know, that's your market. You know, okay. And you can do what you do in that market. I don't know. It, it seems like it's going to be very difficult. Absolutely. To do, to enforce. Uh, you could argue that something like Facebook is probably cleaner because there's Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram separating out the three entities. They were separate entities anyway. You know, they're not. They weren't. They're not like a subsidiary under, from a Google or Amazon point of view, where everything feeds up into the mothership. Mm-hmm. You know, they were. They weren't standalone. They were standalone businesses anyway. So that could be potentially easier. But I yeah, know. yeah. I mean, the you know, I was just again looking at the definition of antitrust, and you know, it's that. One, you want to protect consumers against predatory pricing. And two, you want to ensure fair competition. So that's the consumer side and the business side. Well, actually, I saw a really good tweet, and I meant to bookmark it earlier, um, from someone who had said, like, they had read that particular piece about, um, you know, unfair competition and that the practices of these companies had stopped development for startups and stuff like that. But yet they had mapped that against the funding and the number yeah. of startups created in the last number of years and it like it clearly shows that there's been a massive Big growth time. in that i so saw that you could argue that that hasn't impacted. that was scott much. cooper in fact in so scott oh, okay cooper yeah. From, yeah sorry from was. a16z yeah, yeah. and the secrets of sand hill road who i highly recommend anyone who's yeah. thinking about fundraising for a startup or thinking it's about launching a vc fund my my book in the newsletter this week actually <laughs> my book Good recommendation man. yeah uh no I, I no yeah that was it i knew it was someone legit anyway and i was like look that makes sense and actually, in some ways, what they've done by being so big is created an exit. Yeah. Like, which, you know, it's not a direct, and it's a, probably a bad comparison, but the idea of a soft bank, someone is so big that will probably buy you if you're in the mm-hmm. right space. If you have a Google and an Amazon and Facebook, these guys being so big, and what you do is of value to them, then they'll buy you. If they don't exist, well, who's what's yep. your exit? You know, th- there are plenty of companies, especially former employees of these places who come out, set up something new on the basis that they'll sell it back into one of these companies. Well, this one is complicated. Yep. On the point of complexity, why don't we move on to the next story? This was something, yep. speaking of A16Z, so there's a double segue right there, complexity and A16Z. So this was a post in their September FinTech newsletter from Anish Acharya, who is their A16Z. Ooh, I said it the uh, Irish way, sorry. A16Z. Uh, fintech general partner (laughs) and the uh, name of the piece was how to design fintech for prime users embrace complexity so i kind of got there was a few things in here that tickled me a bit one being a systematic breakdown of b2c sales strategies for 
consumer fintech, obviously B2C is consumer, but also Excel spreadsheets, one of my uh, favorite things going back through <laughs> through time um, from my career in, in financial services. So the first thing that was expressed is that there is a very simple, and I hadn't heard of this before, uh, mostly because my career, you know, up until four years ago had been mostly B2B, but looking at it now from a B2C perspective as well, there's a segmentation strategy for consumer fintech and people use and consumer fintechs use the credit band score uh, in the US. And what you're basically saying is that if you're focusing on selling products to those with lower credit scores, you should focus on liquidity, right? Because they need loans, they need overdraft. Generally, if they're going to have a lower credit score, that's what they hold in higher regard. Um, and that's what you call your non-prime users, um, which there's a bit of societal leanings there, which are unfortunate. The other side is the higher credit scores, where you focus on yield with your consumer fintech products, savings and investment, right? And these you, you'd call the prime users. And the article or the, the essay, more or less, was saying that to date, quote, uh, we've seen significantly more startup activity in the non-prime space than the prime space, with the rise of companies like Earnin, Chime, Neobanks, Challenger Banks, you name them, Dave, and many more. This spate of well-designed products for non-prime consumers is a direct reflection of the urgency and opportunity in meeting that market's financial needs, right? So what, what they're saying is that there's been innovative fintech products geared to prime consumers, on the other hand, has been less of a big thing. And that one of the big reasons why is that that segment, the prime users, already served better by the legacy financial products. So if you've got money to save, if you've got money to invest, there are already so many options out there for you to do that. Now, are some of those a ripoff? Yes. Do some of those give you a great level of service? Yes. Right. So maybe it's not quite a ripoff. Now, getting to the, the crux of the matter, Owen, <laughs> on this one, and where I thought it was quite interesting, is that uniting all these legacy products into a single interface is really hard. So if you've got someone in the Gen X demographic that has perhaps a that just sold to Morgan Stanley E-Trade, right? Yep. Also Charles Schwab, maybe you got a Fidelity account. How do you unite all those things together to get one view of your wealth along with your, your savings account, your checking accounts or current accounts or whatever? Many prime users have their own aggregation kits that they do themselves called Microsoft Excel, right? So they pull everything together that way and look at it that way. And there was back in March, the announcement of Microsoft doing a partnership with Plaid so that data feeds and streams could just be directed right into your Excel spreadsheets to keep everything updated. Great. You know, I built one of these 20 years ago. Not, not a problem. <laughs> so the big question is, how does fintech address the complicated financial lives of those with too much wealth for their financial life to be simple, but too little wealth to pay someone to manage it for you? Like, the, is the market missing something here? There's, you know, I was aggregating things on my Fidelity account in 1998, right? So I don't know what the big deal is now. Have you had any insight into this space in looking at any of the, the startups that you talk to and any of the things that you come across? I was really curious about it. Do you know what? It's not, it's not, or it's an underserved space, definitely. And I suppose... It is in a sense because, like you said, there's a lot of legacy products out there. How big is the market? I mean, I mean it's it, arguably it's a very large market, but you know the need and the recurring kind of revenue piece probably is better targeted at the the non-prime 
consumers, yep. you know, where you can do loans and overdrafts, yep. that sort of thing. I mean, it seems like an open banking sort of thing would be an ideal offering here that within my, whichever account I have, I can connect in my yep. access to my Fidelity account and my E-Trade or my Robinhood or, you know, whatever money manager I have my funds with or whatever. Um, like, you you know, there, there seems to be a need for that. But again, that's going to be driven by one of the banks. And I think it seems like that sort of innovation doesn't happen as much in the US at that level. It's obviously a lot more fragmented a market um, to do. We're seeing some of the neobanks move over there now and a bit of success on that side. But I think ultimately we're, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a it's target not. area. Three, four years ago, there was a whole big robo-advisor push, right? Um, and again, this yeah. would be one single channel that would be managing just a pocket of your wealth, not the whole thing. And those with a lot of money say, well, I kind of want the added service. I don't want just an app that's doing yeah. that for me. I want to talk to somebody. Um, those would be the, you know, the high net worth individual crowd and ultra high net worth individuals. Yeah. So that kind of went by the wayside and a number of different players kind of, you know, closed up shop on that. I thought that if you look at some of the newer players that are being proposed, they're saying, listen, we're going to be able to offer you a completely, totally innovative user experience, and we're going to do it for half the price. Well, that doesn't really do it that much for me either. A lot of the innovation in that space is, is happening inside the bank. So in terms of me being able to run a really, comp a really kind of well-programmed portfolio model for you as the high net worth client and you know you can go like i have some experience in this having worked obviously in an irish bank's private banking yeah. firm and then moving on from there into a uk banks where I, I was working on the corporate side but familiar with things and it was like two different planets i mean well, what was the, what was the risk weighting? Um, everyone from the on the Irish bank side, as as the high net worth clients, you know, their risk weighting was anywhere from fifteen percent to eighty five percent. But everything went into property, yeah. regardless of your level of risk. Yeah. You know, there was no analysis done. So I think, like I think, and, and obviously Barclays was a complete different planet then in terms of being actually able to run models and kind of do that real portfolio um, assessment for you and managing your risk. All that sort of stuff. So I'd say a lot of the innovation from that point of view is happening within the banks or within the kind of advisors on their side. Yeah, I think it's there's probably a generational piece to it as well. If I'm an older high net worth individual, I probably want that, you know, that element of having a person and you know having that conversation and talking through that. Whereas if I've made my money from on the tech side of things. At an earlier age, I'm more open yeah. to that. So if if a Revolut or whoever else starts offering that as a solution, then you know purely by connecting more more offerings through my existing platform, well then I'll probably take yeah, up on that. Absolutely. And I was talking to someone earlier today who suggested that um, there's probably a bunch of millennials out there who have bought crypto um, before stocks, yeah. right? And they own Bitcoin, but they are not investing investing in shares, investing in stocks, right? Uh, yeah. Not a surprise. And if you are a Revolut account holder, you can buy crypto, right? You can buy stocks if you want. Yep. You've got, you've got your current accounts, right? You've got multiple bank account feeds now coming in there. And they're also doing a bit of yep. early predictive analytics with this subscription thing that was just announced the other day. Now, I went in today to have a look at Revolut um, for the crypto trading side of it. And I got distracted by the stock trading side of it. And I said, oh, I'll throw 50 into <laughs> Apple. And then I remembered, I don't trust Revolut. So I didn't do it. 
which was uh, which was fun. And I told that same individual I was talking today, I won't tell that long story. And I won't again, like my mom said, if you have nothing nice to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. Don't right. Anyway. Yep. So I think what I've come around to is okay. Spreadsheets be damned. If they're, I don't think it's a big enough demographic to address this right now um, with a killer app that will bring 35 to 45 year olds together with the right level of wealth where their financial lives are too complicated for, you know, for an existing app, but, you know, not simple enough to be able to just do it with a Revolut account. Just let it happen. Let it go. You know, financial innovation will eventually address it. Does somebody need to step into the market right now and run screaming towards a solution? I'm not feeling it. Nope. And Joe, it's a it's an interesting uh, kind of segue into the next piece, uh, which whilst is is directly around Apple One, it actually comes back to I'll, I'll bring it back to what we were just talking about there. So that was the 15th of September. Apple announced Apple One, which is offers customers Apple Music, Apple TV Plus, Apple Arcade, iCloud, and more services in one simple plan. So one fee, and you get all these things. And that's great. It's a subscription model. I mean, they're, you know, they're they're as old as whatever. As old, everyone understands mm-hmm. them. But uh, and I I can't claim lay claim to uh, this owning this particular phrase. But um, what I wanted to talk about and why I thought it was interesting was what's been called a rundle, <laughs> which is a recurring <laughs> revenue bundle. So it's got, I have to credit Scott Galloway for uh, coming up with that phrase. But I love it. Uh, and actually, what is interesting, and, and coming back to what we were talking about there, is that to me, this is the future model for direct-to-consumer kind of fintech players. It's the idea of you know, the challenger banks and the others offering multiple services as part of one subscription. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario we we're talking about there on the kind of high net worth side, well, I'm banking with Revolut. And it's not. this isn't just, a, oh, I can now do a few stocks and stuff like that. This is for one fee. You know, like I signed up to their monthly fee, whatever, so I could get uh, cards for the kids. That's why I'm paying the seven ninety nine a month. I wouldn't have been paying it yep. otherwise. There's yep. no reason. But by adding more and more subscriptions, so by paying Revolut 15 quid a month, I get my insurance, but with my insurance provider as part of it, not you know, not through something mm-hmm. through Revolut. This is they're bundling a whole load of subscriptions that I need or that are of value to me in a financial services space under one fee. And to me, I think that is going to be the future of it. And you mentioned, I didn't see anything about Revolution subscriptions yeah. this week, actually. You mentioned yeah. something there. Yeah, that just that just came out this week or, or in the last week uh, it was announced. And what they're doing is that they're going to look through your spending and see it, where you have these recurring spends of the same amount. And maybe, or I don't know if they're going to ask you if it's a subscription or not, but then they're going to do some predictive, you know, well, projections for what your spending is going to be for the rest of the month if you have a recurring outflow on the 25th of the month, but it's the second of the month. They want to show you how much money you have left for the rest of the month, which was kind of one of the original things that Monzo did. So this is getting closer and closer to Olivia. Yeah, yeah, which is obviously on the the money management side of things. But to me, I I genuinely believe that the way that these companies will make money, and it, it may not be the kind of typical loans and overdrafts piece, it'll be how much how many services can I offer you within your yeah. one fee, but of value services, you know? And so let's say they're doing the analytics and they're doing the money management and they're saying, okay, well, 
on the back of that, why not pay for your Revolut or your uh, if you're in Revolut, why not pay your Netflix subscription? Yeah. And maybe they partner with Netflix and they partner with Apple, and you're paying all your subscriptions through there that you one account. There you go. You know? You're on to something. So I think that's how you can you kind of keep those customers long term. It's how you monetize them ultimately. Yeah. You know, but you you get the more and more things, the easier it is, so that I'm not paying for because Jesus it breaks my heart having to uh, occasionally my netflix account on my tv will log out and i have to remember oh, what the password is and Nightmare. Back into it you know and all, all that sort of stuff to be able to go through my bank account to do that you know i think is to me is how we're gonna is, is how those companies are yeah make money. If people talk about uh gary so. fegan shout out to gary fegan um he's in edinburgh and uh he's a fintech king himself and i talked to him a couple <laughs> years ago about this it's about kind of the you know, your invisible app, right? Just it happens in the background. And this was about, you know, your yeah. money. But I think, you know, what you're talking about here is anything that you, your lifestyle. lifestyle, you know, and it just happens in the background and your lifestyle becoming more and more and more online over the last 20 years. Is there a way to just fund that with, um, you know, what do they call that? Robux now and Roblox that all my kids, kids are playing. Yeah. But that's, that's it. So I think by being able to obviously get access to the data, they'll be able to see what subscriptions you have. And I would say they'll start going to the market and saying, well, you know, whether it's Roblox or whoever, we're now, we now have a partnership yeah. with Roblox. So if you pay through us, you'll yeah. get it cheaper. If you pay through us, you'll get your PlayStation game, your PlayStation store access or whatever cheaper. You'll get your iTunes stuff cheaper. Sounds like something Virgin would want to do. Should we get Richard Branson on the show? Yeah, we yeah, give him a shout. Not? See, if, see if he's available. <laughs> Yeah. So remember, Rundle. Rundle. I like that. That's, that's what we're calling it. Re recurring revenue bundles. There, there is something that rhymes with Rundle, which is a funny word that my high school pals used to bandy around. That I will not share what that word is, and I will not share what it means. Uh, and we can leave it. We can leave it at Rundles. <laughs> um, talking about friends of the United States, James Courier is unfortunately not a friend of mine. I think he's one of the guys that I have reached out to uh, at NFX that hasn't got back to me. But um, again awesome content coming from nfx all the time i absolutely love it maybe it's just because yeah. i'm such a network marketplace geek right and i love that buyers bring sellers and sellers bring buyers so when i see their stuff i'm kind of all over it so this was the winning psychology of top founders in fundraising meetings um and i tweeted this last week because i liked it that much and that you know and the, the basis is and to quote james for any given meeting with a vc the chance it will result in funding is between one and ten percent right you, you're not always going to get funding yeah. out of an investor meeting. <laughs> so that means that you have a 90% probability that you will not raise money from this person. So if that's your only goal to convince them to invest in you uh, for that meeting, then you are wasting 90% of your meetings, right? So the way the suggestion was, if it's a 10-minute meeting, pitch for four, ask questions for six. If it's a 30-minute meeting, pitch for 12, ask questions and have a discussion for the next 18 minutes. And if it is a... Uh, 60 minute meeting, you know, 15, 16, 20 minutes max of a pitch, followed by a discussion or even, you know, cut it 12 even, you know, and so make sure you get your questions in. And there were, I think, 35 questions on the list or maybe 40, perhaps 45. And I picked out a few. I think you picked out a few um, that were our favorites. And if you yeah. want to talk through yours first and then I'll talk through mine. Yeah, I'd, look, I picked out five. In fact, we have. This, I think we have the same one on one of them, uh, so we can mention that one. The one of the main ones that I thought was really interesting was around 
does the VC get the sense that the company will be able to defend this business once it's up and running? So it talks about kind of defensibility and the company's moat. So, you know, that needs to be, that needs to come across. And I suppose the great thing and what people should do more of is recognize that VCs probably see a lot of, well, obviously they see a lot of pitches. They see a lot of companies. They get, they have a lot of experience hearing about, and a lot of the time you'll have seen a similar type of model. So use that opportunity to get the feedback on something. So being able to ident- being able to articulate why your product or your idea is defensible is key. And if that doesn't come across, then you know you should be yeah. asking that, trying to get that feedback. A couple other ones, you know, one I suppose was what's the main metric that would prove this is going to be a great business. So you know you might have an idea as to what the key piece is, and depending on the type of business you're doing, maybe it's users. You know, but but it'll be interesting to know that what are the funders looking at make sure that that's what you are articulating yep and then let's see the last one last one i had actually uh, was about distribution so what experience with other companies that try to distribute on the channels that you're planning to use so depending on your route to market you know distribution is key ultimately it's one of the most important pieces about the whole thing so how have how has the vc seen other companies in this space uh, use a particular distribution channel they might have uh, some interesting kind of ideas or views around that so it'll be good to kind of ask yep. that question yeah i get that and there was there was one more and i actually picked six i just realized that so we'll we'll go to that <laughs> one last because you and i both picked it you picked it as five i picked it as yeah. six but my top five were number three when you explain this to your partners how you describe this business which to me is a wonderful question to ask because that then validates whether or not one the vc was listening two you're able to express yourself in concise and understandable form Right? Or did you just go on rambling like I used to do when people ask me what, what I did and I gave them my life history? Right? And I would just say, I'm a startup <laughs> advisor, mostly working with fintech. Bing, right? Done. So, you, um, you know, that's, I think that's important because unless you're pitching to a, a solo VC uh, or what do they call it, a solo capitalist these days, they always need to go talk to their partners. They always need to be able to describe it quickly um, and simply. Second one I like was number eight. What is the one thing you think I'm underestimating or being naive about, right? Which is a real kind of humility question, which says, you know, lots of times when you pitch something to a VC and if they think you're just being daft, they'll just keep nodding and and just try to get you through the meeting. And you, you will never get that feedback from them if they think you're just way off base. Sometimes when they think you're way off base, they don't understand what it is you're doing because you haven't explained yourself concisely, right? So that's a double whammy right there. Next yeah. one, have you seen somebody try this business and fail or succeed in the last 10 years? Love this one. I told the story twice in the last couple of days about one of the very first startups that I worked with um, and was doing this completely pro bono. They wrote an 85-page business plan. And during the meeting or right after the meeting, I said, this, this sounds familiar. Let me look at something. And I'm like, have you guys heard of these other guys? They're already kind of doing this. And they're like, no, we didn't look at that. I'm like, you didn't look at your competition. Okay. Yeah. So whether th- <laughs> someone's doing it right now or someone's already tried and failed, when did they fail and why? Right. And why are you, why are you different? Exactly. Next one is one of my favorites is the way we've calculated the TAM or the total addressable market feel right to you. I've been working on this with a few startups recently on getting that total addressable market right. And I've seen some doozies in terms of big numbers that are kind of just <laughs> big numbers. Um, my favorite one is in the blockchain space um, where people say that the World Economic Forum reported in the year 2015 that 
something like 10% of the world's GDP by the year 2027 will be recorded on a blockchain of some type. People work back through the numbers and they say, okay, 24% then, or actually 24 trillion worth of assets will be on a blockchain in the year 2027. It's completely just misaligned expectations and assumptions that just don't work, right? They're like, okay, that's a reason we exist and that's a reason we're going to market. Doesn't do it. So getting any insight at all on how you've calculated your market size is really helpful. Next one was, I'd like to fill in this round from a few smaller checks from angels and advisors. Can you think of anyone who would be worth talking to, right? And you want to make sure that when you ask that question that you're not saying, listen, I'm not looking for an intro, you know, and I'll go find my way in myself. If you feel that no coming, you know, get these referrals or get these ideas from folks. I've got five off of VC that was, you know, saying, listen, like the business, but it's way too early right? Uh, a couple of months ago. And that was really helpful. Last one. And we both like this one. Who would you like to see me add to this team in the next year? Right? It's an, it's an interesting one because you'd have everyone has an idea of oh, who am I hiring next, but it's good to get the feedback from investors as to who, where is there, what do they believe you should focus on? You know, especially for first time founders that uh, and depending on the space you're in, maybe you're going to need someone in legal and compliance a lot sooner than you mm-hmm. think. That sort of thing. So it's good to get that feedback. Yep. And there's always, you know, when you look at the team slide of a deck, you, you know, sometimes someone will look at that and have some experience in that market, in that field and know that, okay, you don't have enough technical experience there, or if you don't have enough sales or operating experience there, here's someone who we'd like to see you hire, right? So I think that's, uh, yeah. it was a good list. They did another list recently on the top questions to ask folks about how they adjust to remote working. Right. And um, I thought it was a great just interview list of questions for folks that startups yeah. are hiring now. Right. Because everyone's working remotely. So you kind of just have to ask those questions. No, they put they put out some great content. Yeah. Guys are really valuable. stuff. all right. Anything else you thought we should cover? No, okay. no, I think we've covered. Plenty I'd like there. to just say Godspeed to Eddie Van Halen. Um, he yeah. was uh, I was sitting in the car tonight. I hadn't even heard the news until today. I'd missed it completely. Yeah, really. um, wasn't looking at Facebook or anything the last couple of days. It's just been so nonstop busy. And um, so someone popped up uh, the best of both worlds from Live Without a Net recorded at, I think, the New Haven Civic Center or something like that in Connecticut, either New Haven or Hartford. And, you know, big trip down memory road sitting there. Interestingly enough, watching that of uh, Sammy Hagar, Eddie Van Halen, and Michael Anthony and Alex Van Halen, I think I got them all playing the best of both worlds while my daughter was at guitar practice. So that was a bit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw, uh, and look, it's, it's not my type of music. Jesus, well, you weren't even born but, then. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, did, I saw a fascinating uh, quote from some interview with him there that someone had put up on Twitter about how he, he, did, the, he did the solo or something in thriller or one of the michael jackson songs he did but because because they had an agreement with the band that they wouldn't ever take on any side gigs he told michael jackson that he couldn't be paid for it but he'd like to do it anyway but all he'd want in payment was a, ca- a crate of beer and for michael jackson to teach him how to dance <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounds like eddie oh <laughs> uh, yeah. all right well god bless eddie and um you know ho- hopefully that big guitar in the sky is uh, is kind to you yeah. I think that's a good point to wrap it up for tonight, bud. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you next time. Take it easy. 
That wraps it up, folks. Thanks for listening to us try to figure out why the world does what it does. The links for the stories we covered are in the show notes for this episode on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Also, you can subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter at moneyneversleeps.substack.com. If you're enjoying Money Never Sleeps and want to see it continue, make sure you hop on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. And don't forget Conan Brophy from Create Sound. He mixes and edits each episode for us and is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I help startups get their products to market, get customers, and finance their vision. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or at norioventures.com, and you can follow Owen on Twitter at owenfitzgerald9. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.